0: PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, and I welcome you to the August edition of Physical Therapy. In this month's edition, you're going to find nine different articles, six of which are research reports and three that are immediately clinically relevant. As usual, I'm just going to start from the top and say a few comments about each of the articles. Before I begin, though, I would like to tell you that the audio portion of the Rothstein Roundtable on Medical Homes that was presented at the annual conference will be posted as a podcast in August. I've heard from all accounts that it was an outstanding session. Okay. The first article is a LEAP article, and some of you may remember that that acronym stands for Linking Evidence and Practice. The authors are from Ireland and Australia. This article begins with a Cochrane Review on chronic ankle instability, and the Cochrane Review could only find 10 articles of the 10 articles. These authors could only use four, which were related to neuromuscular training. So I think it's important to recognize that although chronic ankle instability is not uncommon following an ankle injury, there's very little research that's been done to identify best practice. So the authors outline a program that they would recommend based on the articles, and I would like to compliment the authors for going beyond the Cochrane Review and asking the question about long-term follow-up. In other cases, looking at musculoskeletal interventions, there's evidence that a booster intervention is necessary, so they also recommend a booster intervention. One of the things that I would like to recognize in this issue is the diversity of authorship. So thank you, authors, for working across countries. The next article is entitled Influence of Fear Avoidance Beliefs on Functional Status Outcomes for People with Musculoskeletal Conditions of the Shoulder. This paper is going to be the topic of a podcast discussion that will be moderated by Dr. Chris Main, one of our editorial board members. You can look him up on the PTJ website and you'll see that Chris Main is a psychologist who's located in England. And you may recall that he and Steve George did a special issue on the psychosocial influences on low back pain in May 2011. So please look forward to and listen to this podcast. I do think that the results support the hypothesis that persons with elevated fear have poor outcomes as we've seen with low back pain and in this case, it's associated with the shoulder. So I think that the results have important clinical significance. The next study compares humans and robots to provide bilateral arm training in persons post-stroke. This and the following study are both done primarily by a team of occupational therapists and they are from different universities in Taiwan. For those of you who are familiar with constraint-induced therapy, there's sometimes the competing paradigm of bilateral arm training post-stroke. And so it's looking at the potential benefit of bilateral arm training using a therapist or using robot-assisted training and looking at its effect on outcomes for kinematics for functional performance and quality of life. I love the discussion in this paper because it really does address head-on the issue of the difference between bilateral arm training and constraint-induced therapy. I also think that you'll enjoy the study because it's carefully done and helps the physical therapist reader to understand possibilities that robot-assisted therapy may provide as a tool for intervention for upper extremity training. The next study looks at the validity of abbreviating the wolf motor function test in persons with chronic stroke and with subacute stroke. The study is conducted by a team that comes from various universities within Taiwan. And I'm just going to jump to the conclusion and say that the study using 97 people with chronic stroke and 75 people with subacute stroke Finds that it is appropriate to streamline the Wolf motor function test. So I hope that those of you who are concerned about timing in clinic when doing an assessment will recognize that this study validates a shorter form of test. The subsequent study is by a team of investigators from the Netherlands. And this looks at repeated measurements of passive range of motion of the upper extremity in persons post-stroke. The authors use a hydrogoniometer and two assessors and seven motions of the upper extremity. The interesting piece about this work is that the measurements are made four times over a 20-week period so that one can almost use this study as well as a reliability study as a study that looks at sort of the natural history of recovery over that period of time in this patient population. I think this will be a very useful contribution to the literature, particularly for researchers. Since the study used two examiners, I'm not sure how realistic that is in the clinical setting. The next study looks at cross-cultural adaptation and measurement properties of an Italian version of an outcome tool entitled Patient-Rated Tennis Elbow Evaluation Questionnaire. The authors talk about the need for an assessment tool when treating persons who have lateral elbow tendinopathy. Many of the authors are physicians. There is a physical therapist as well. So I encourage you to look at this study because it talks about cross-cultural adaptation as well as just validation in another language. The ABLE scale is really an exciting paper for me because as far as I know, it's the first comprehensive balance assessment tool for persons with spinal cord injury. The title of the test is Activity-Based Balance Level Evaluation. The authors are from various parts of the United States. And there's a video that accompanies this report so that you'll be able to actually see the components of the test being performed. It's extremely well-written paper. The rationale for developing the test and the methods used to establish the items in the test are very thoughtfully presented. And finally, this issue closes with two remarkably interesting case reports. The first is a presentation of two cases of persons with multiple sclerosis. The authors are all from Northeastern University. Each of the patients presents with multiple sclerosis and also has cervical disc pathology. So in a sense, the case report goes through a differential diagnosis. It reminds us that, it reminded me at least, that we can't stick with the primary medical diagnosis as a physical therapist. It's really important to examine the patient and look carefully at the findings that we get from the examination when coming up with a plan of care. So I think you'll find that first paper very interesting and helpful in clinical settings. The second, I just have to say, is a really fun case report for me because it pushes me to think very differently. This is a paper that's done by authors that are from New Jersey, Judy Deutsch and her colleague, as well as Ruth Dixstein from the University of Haifa in Israel. This paper talks about the use of motor imagery, but not motor imagery with patient in the clinical setting, but motor imagery using telerehabilitation. So it really pushes us to think about application of different kinds of technology, different methods of intervention, in a really exciting way. There were 12 sessions that were described, seven of the sessions the physical therapist was in the home with the patient, and five were done remotely. If you're not familiar with motor imagery, the authors do a very nice job explaining and providing rationale for motor imagery. They also add a motivational component to this motor imagery to encourage arousal, attention, problem-solving, and reward, which I think is very important They talk about how to test a person's ability to respond to motor imagery as an intervention. So I hope you enjoy this as the final article in this issue as much as I did. So in looking at this issue, we have physical therapists, engineers, basic scientists, physicians, all contributing from around the world to increase our knowledge and enhance practice in physical therapy. So thanks to the authors, thanks to the editorial board members, and particularly thanks to the reviewers for all the work you have done to make this issue. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Crake, email ptj at and be sure to include CraikCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.